We're back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. We hear a lot about how artificial intelligence is changing technology and could change the world, whether discovering a cure for cancer, taking over our jobs, or turning on us to overtake the planet. But still, we love having it. My name is Alexa, and I'm here to say I'm the baddest AI in the cloud today. From using Alexa and Siri to choosing what to watch on Netflix, there is a gap in how we use and how we think about AI. Charles Isbell was named Junior Dean of the College of Computing at Georgia Tech on July the 1st. He specializes in AI and is here to help sort through some of the real-world applications and potential. Hello and welcome. Thank you. Happy to be here. So we have a lot of notions about what artificial intelligence is. How do you define it? Well, there are a lot of definitions of AI, uh, including some that are very, very technical. But I have a couple that are my favorite. Yeah, I want the fifth grade version. <laughs> well, my favorite one is pretty simple. It's, it's the art, the science, the engineering, the computing, the mathematics of building systems that if people did those things, we would consider them intelligent. And so what that means is, as a person who works on AI, I try to work on problems that computers can't yet solve and people kind of can solve. Okay, so it makes us that much, it gives us more, even more potential to solve problems. Yes, and in fact, is at its best when it works with people. So it's just one facet of a broader computer science industry, but it's moved very quickly in recent decades. So what is driving this rapid development in the field? Well, what's driving AI is the same thing that's driving computer science. It's what's driving all of our big technological changes. There's two things. One is the ubiquity of data. We are recording everything about ourselves, all of our interactions. My car knows where I am. My phone knows where I am. Every time you go to the airport, everyone in the airport knows where you are. So there's all of that data. And at the same time, we have computer systems that are now fast enough to be able to process that data and detect patterns in them. And that's really driving everything about technological change. But that, okay, so go to the car knowing where you are, your house knows where everything, your appliances in some cases know where you are and what you're doing, which opens us up to spying or hacking. That's one of the fears. Auto-tagging our photos on Facebook uh, opens us up to privacy concerns, but we live with it. So users are trading vulnerability, which is real, for convenience, which is also real. So how do you think AI has made our life easier or even more complicated? Well, it's made it easier mainly because it's made things more convenient for us, right? I get in my car and my car immediately has decided I'm going to go home and goes ahead and throws up the, the map for me and gives me the opportunity to figure out the best way to follow traffic and which way to get home more quickly. I ignore it most of the time, but, you know, it is still a useful thing to do. Uh, Siri uh, predicts the things that I'm going to need to do next, and I take advantage of it all the time. Right? So those are the ways that it's made our lives simpler. The things that we do over and over and over again, it learns how to do it. It learns how to help us do it more efficiently. On the other hand, it's made our lives more complicated because just like computers can make us do things well more efficiently, it can make us do things poorly more efficiently. So all of our built-in biases, all of the things that we do, we don't do well. We can now do faster and better. Well, the biases is a big topic for you because you've you talked about the people who are designing this technology, what they bring to it. And you've pointed out that it's not the most diverse group, certainly. So how might the experiences or backgrounds of the people in the developers room affect the end product, how we use it, how we see it and how it delivers? Well, it's a very simple thing, right? You everyone comes to any problem with uh, a set of experiences and a set of assumptions about the way the world works. And basically, at the 
end of the day, most human beings make the same mistake over and over again, which is they assume everybody else is motivated by exactly the same things they're motivated by. So if you are not surrounded by people who've had different experiences, who might be motivated by different things, you design systems that don't reflect the needs of people who are not like you. Now, this is easy to fix. Right. You just bring in more and more people who have uh, more diverse backgrounds, who come from places or wanting to solve problems that you want to solve. And we know that when you do that, you get better products in the end. You get uh, you get better services. Everything in the end is better. Well, historically, there's been a lot of innovation coming mostly out of the Bay Area, certainly some out of New York City. But in recent years, Atlanta has become a technology center in the South, particularly for African-American men. Mm -hmm. So what do you think has drawn them to this area of technology and how can you encourage more? Well, so there's an interesting premise in the question. I think it's less that people have been drawn to this area than they were already here. Uh I think if you want to have a diverse workforce, there's a couple things you can do. You can convince people to hop on a plane or hop in their cars and drive halfway across the country and live someplace they haven't been, or you can come to where they are. If you're in Atlanta, you're surrounded by a diverse population with a particular set of experiences. You should be here where the people are rather than force them to go to the other side of the world where you are. Ah, So develop the talent that is there. Develop the talent that is there. Help them to uh, accomplish the things that they can accomplish and the things that they want to accomplish. How is AI playing a role in Georgia communities and industries today as you look over the big picture? Well, in in every way possible. I'll tell you something I I learned a couple of years ago that sort of amazed me. Uh, We are one of the centers of uh, building robots that debone chicken. So apparently that's a really, really big thing. Uh, And we're at the center of it. Georgia Tech and particularly GTRI, which is our applied research arm, uh, puts a lot of energy and effort into that. So it's not... The things that are obvious to you, the the series, the Alexas, your car can drive, those things are kind of obvious. That's where you think everything is. But the truth is they're deboning your chicken. They're picking your fruit. They're making differences at the very low level. And it's affecting every single thing that you do. Which is one of the fears that people have, that the robo-apocalypse is going to take over all of our jobs. And by some projections, hundreds of millions of jobs will be taken over. So what, which jobs are particularly vulnerable? We know that, you know, in a lot of the professions where repetitive labor is being replicated by robots. What do you see? Every single job. Yeah. Every single job is Yours, vulnerable. My, your, your job, my job? Every job but mine is vulnerable. <laughs> uh, every single job is vulnerable. And there are a couple of reasons for this. One is that everything that we do is ultimately repetitive. In fact, uh, in my own research, one of the things that I discovered is that you can predict what pe- people are remarkably predictable. I can watch you for a weekend and know everything about you. The second thing I learned is that people hate being told that they're repetitive, but they are. We know that we have machines that can do a better job of determining whether someone is likely to have cancer than doctors who have been working on this their entire lives can. Everyone is vulnerable in that sense. But the good news is that even though everyone can have parts of their job taken away by computers, remember they're more efficient than we are and they don't get bored. If we work with them, then actually everything turns out to be better. If the machines are partnering with us, if the algorithms are partnering with us, then allows us to do the things we're good at and allows the machines to do the things that they're good at. I'm thinking of, you know, how people kind of react a little smugly when they hear that, um, uh, for example, Elon Musk, he said he's going to automate his entire Tesla workforce with robots, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't work out. So we're a little bit happy about that. We're a little, we're just a little bit happy. <laughs> we're about just that. a little bit. Well, first of all, why didn't it work out? And then I want to get to like what is going on with us emotionally when we get challenged by this. Well, the reason it doesn't work out is because the problem keeps changing. 
right? If you automate away uh, your note taking, so you have a computer that you can look at your notes for, well, that just frees you to do other things that you didn't have time to do before. So parts of the job goes away. Uh, part of the things you used to do are no longer available to you, but now you can do other things you couldn't do before and you just can't catch up. The machines just can't catch up as we keep changing what it is that we happen to care about. So is that one of the reasons I want to pick up the the what we're afraid about after, but is that one of the reasons why when we think about you know, by 2019, we're all going to have uh, assistant robots. We're going to, have, you know, moving sidewalks. All of these things are going to have changed. Is that why it hasn't kept up with, I guess, our projections because the technology isn't there, because things keep changing? I think it's because things keep changing. What it is we want to accomplish changes every single day. And that's perfectly fine. In fact, that's good. Otherwise, we would have nothing to strive for. Uh, and I think that once we have automated cars driving us everywhere, it will free us up to do other things and there'll be more problems to solve. The problems will never go away. The machines at their best will just help us to work better on the problems that we happen to care about. Charles Isbell is with us. He's professor and new junior dean of Georgia Tech's College of Computing. Well, thinking about the future of the field often provokes this anxiety. I know I'm focusing on the anxiety. That's probably telling you something. I'm going to start with that. Here's an iconic clip of AI gone bad from 2001, A Space Odyssey. I don't know what you're talking about, Hal. I know that you and Frank were planning to disconnect me. And I'm afraid that's something I cannot allow to happen. Yes, the robot takeover. And that's from the 1960s, right? What, 1968? People have reimagined the many twists on machines so far advanced that they think for themselves. Is that something that you or your colleagues actually imagine as well? I mean... Sure. I mean, most of us got into this. Well, I got into this for the deep philosophical questions. Are we actually going to be able to build something that's as intelligent as we are? What would that mean? What would it mean to grow something like that and have something that might live for centuries? What, what, you know, what could we do if we, if we had that sort of thing? So I think a lot of people are motivated by that. Uh, I don't worry about it. I think that if we build a hyper-intelligent thing, it will be bored with us. But I think the idea that we're going to build a hyper-intelligent thing anytime in the next century is... Highly unlikely. Well, maybe here we should distinguish between ANI or artificial narrow intelligence and AGI or artificial general intelligence. Mm -hmm. Is that helpful? It is helpful. So if most people, when they think of AI, think, think of uh, commander data on Star Trek, the next generation, mm -hmm. for example, something that's just as intelligent as we are and probably strives to be human and to have emotions. And that's fine. In fact, I think that that's very motivating. But Everything that we do has automation. Everything that we do has AI in it already. Uh, and each one of those things is AI. I will tell you the hard part about being an AI researcher in the end, it's not the problems you have to solve. It's that every time you solve some problem, people decide it's not AI anymore. What, what do you mean? Well, you know, you, you've pushed to the point where we can recognize people. You've pushed to the point where we can drive cars pretty well. But that's not really AI. You're just using some kind of trick, right? And I think fundamentally it's because if we admit that we are doing a pretty good job of building truly intelligent things, then uh, it means we aren't as special as we want to yeah. think that we are. And I think much of the fear is not about losing jobs. I mean, some of that is there. Much of the fear is that we're not special. But we are special. We will remain special. It's perfectly fine. Well, I look at some heavy hitters. Bill Gates and Tim Berners-Lee uh, recognize the promise of AGI, uh, but also each voiced some concerns, and, and Stephen Hawking declared that AGI could spell the end of the human race. Now, these are really heavy hitters and big thinkers. How do you reckon that fear with the way that you think of, you know, positively about it? 
So I, I think it's very simple. I think they're making a category error. It's not that uh, AI can't destroy us all. Of course, it can. All tools can hurt. You know, we can all hurt ourselves with our tools. But the way in which they imagine it, I think, is wrong. It's not that the Terminator will rise up and Skynet will come and, and rain fire across the planet. What's actually going to happen is that we are going to change radically the sort of cultural setting in which we live by building these machines that go faster and faster and do more and more things. And we will not react quickly enough with regulation. We will not act quickly enough with the way we educate people. And it will cause economic problems. It's not going to be the machines rising up. It's going to be us not thinking about how building those machines change what we do day to day. Right. If we do predictive policing, what does that mean for legal uh, legal framework or, you know, the whole judicial system, for right. example? By the way, that's a great example. And it tells you sort of the mistake that people make with AI. So I think something like 38 states use some kind of uh, um, uh, machine to, or some kind of algorithm to, the, to determine whether you're likely to commit a crime again. But it turns out we don't have any data that tells us whether you commit a crime. What we have is we have data on whether you are arrested whether you are indicted, whether you are convicted, not whether you commit a crime, but we conflate the two. And because that's a mistake that humans make all the time, the machines allow us to make it more efficiently. So then what do you do? You say, well, this is where all the crime is being committed. So that's where we're going to put all of the police, which means, of course, you will find more crime, which and it just goes on and on and on. And you make, make things worse by making them more efficient. AI also has great potential to redefine relationships to each other. In the movie, Her examined what it would be like to have a deep relationship with AI. Here's a little clip. She's totally amazing. You know, she's so smart. She doesn't just see things in, in black or white. She sees this whole gray area and she's helping me explore it. And we just bonded really quickly. So how far away are we from something like her or certain episodes of Black Mirror, let's say? And how might that change the way we interact with one another if we have this companion who is generated by algorithms giving us the feedback that we want? So we're far away from the full-blown AGI, but we're not very far away from something that people would treat uh, as if it's a full-blown intelligent companion. People are remarkably good at this. If you've ever had the experience, and I'm sure you have, of talking to a three-year-old or a four-year-old, what do you do? You change the way you speak to them. You talk very differently. You focus on different things. Humans are excellent at adjusting the way they, they talk to others and adjusting the way what they expect of others. And we are already there when it comes to being able to build systems that people feel good about, they feel a connection to, uh, and help them feel better. Well, you have two children, 14 and 11, I guess, years old. And you're also a professor uh, to plenty of other digital natives, right? Are their relationships to or their questions about this technology different from yours or maybe from mine? (laughs) They are different. Um, What they have is they have, it's always been this way. It has always been this way. My son, uh, before he could even speak, he was he was uh, wasn't even three years old yet, uh, would come and figure out ways to trick me out of my uh, iPad because because he wanted to play games on my iPad. And for him, this is just a natural thing. They look at YouTube on their little phones. They don't watch TV. It's very, very different. They're living in a completely different technological world. And for them, the idea of intelligent things that support them is not at all weird or strange. And their children, it will be completely different. This won't even be a the conversation that we're having now will not be a conversation that even occurs to them. What do you think that conversation will be in the future? It'll be, you know, what's next? Is it okay if I, you know, marry my robot and then want to divorce my robot? Is that actually okay? What does that mean? Big field divorcing robots. It's the future. 
That's the future. We may be worried or scared, but also deeply drawn to it and fascinated. So what do you think drives that kind of complex relationship to this technology? Well, I think it's two things. I think that uh, the idea of something intelligent that we might build or we might create or help mold, it's it's the thing that drives drives a lot of us uh, uh, for what we do. But the other thing fundamentally is we are social creatures, right? Human beings want to be a part of a larger group and being a part of uh, an intelligent device that talks to you and acts as if it is as intelligent and cares in the same way that you do about the same things. I mean, we're just driven to that in general. So anything make you nervous about the growth of AI? Uh, Only that we set the expectations incorrectly. I have two concerns. One is that we set the expectations wrong and people think we're going to be someplace we're not going to be um, and don't take advantage of that. And the other is not directly related to AI. It's that we are not educating uh, everyone. We need to educate to be a part of this revolution. And if that's the case, we're going to, the next generation is going to be having a completely different conversation about the digital haves and digital has have nots and whether the robots are taking their jobs away or the robots are helping them with their jobs. And that's not a place that we want to be. Charles Isbell, thank you so much for speaking with us. Charles Isbell is Professor and John P. Emley, Junior Dean at Georgia Tech's College of Computing. Well, you can join the conversation on our Facebook group, GPB Radio's On Second Thought. What do you think? Are you afraid of what the future brings with AI? Or do you feel like you're getting dependent on it? And did you know that your chicken is being deboned by robots, by the way? On Second Thought is produced by Amelia Brock, LaRaven Taylor, Priya Mahadevan, and Jake Troyer. Our engineer is Jesse Neiswanger, and our senior producer is Amy Kiley. Thanks so much for joining us today for On Second Thought.